Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gender Stories podcast. Thank you so much for your patience, dear listeners. I know it's been a while since I've done an episode, but it is 2020. And every week feels about like a day and a year at the same time. I hope you're well and that the wait will have been worthwhile. I know it's been worthwhile with for me because I'm here today with the wonderful Dr. Eleanor Yanega. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Oh my God. I've been wanting to do this for some time. And then all of a sudden I was like, I haven't done this yet. So here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Yanega is a medieval historian specializing in gender and sexuality and has a book coming out, a graphic guide. And we'll talk about the book, but most importantly, we'll talk about gender in medieval times. And I'm so excited about that. Anything else I should be saying to people to introduce you? Oh, no, that's the, that's the main stuff that, that I want to get across. <laughs> I mean, if you want more of this afterwards, I suppose you can check out also my blog as well, which is going-medieval.com. And I just uh, write a lot about um, politics and pop culture and medieval history. So, you know, which obviously everyone is going to want to learn so much more about after this because uh, they'll realize how important and fascinating it is. Exactly. You're going to be so brilliant that everybody's going to go to your blog. You also have a wonderful Twitter account, which I really enjoy. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Echoing medieval. Like I'm there. I'm yelling and I'm there. I love your yelling. Your yelling is often very, very purposeful. It's true. It's true. It's it's one of those things where I kind of like vacillate back and forth from like, is the am I actually talking about history or am I just like yelling about politics? Uh, it's and 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 I would argue that you can't really do one without the other. So you know, that's that's me. <laughs> exactly. I so agree. So let's let's get right into it and talk about how many misconceptions people have about me mm. all times, especially when it comes to gender. Right. So yeah. what are your kind of top pet peeves of what people get wrong about medieval times, especially around gender and sexuality. Yeah, so this is a, a really, obviously, like, this is one of my biggest pet peeves. And it's the thing that I spend all this time arguing with, because for me, one of the big myths that we have about the medieval period generally is that it's, quote unquote, the Dark Ages, right? And it's this super lazy catch-all for, like, essentially writing off a thousand years of history. In the first place, the term Dark Ages was never meant to cover the medieval period. It just refers to the early medieval period, and it specifically means dark, like, it, as an occluded. So we don't have a lot of sources for it. So we just don't know very much what was going on. And there is this kind of like real tendency for modern people to think about history um, as a sort of like march towards goodness or march towards equality or march towards rational thinking. Um, And we like to think that the Romans were a bunch of really good guys who are very rational and did nice things. And then when uh, Rome fell, there was the bad time of the medieval period where everyone was very stupid and they just um, sat in ditches throwing mud at each other. And then there was the Renaissance and everything was fine again and then we kept like going on with this glorious march 
Um, and so that's a really pervasive uh, myth that doesn't really mm. make any sense. Um, and, you know, I would argue that it's really born out of um, our own kind of like nationalism and colonialism. Um, mm -hmm. In particular, it's that we we tend to look for a big, um, well, basically big empires that are <laughs> oppressing other people. Uh, and we say, oh, well, that's what's good. You can tell that, that something is good if there's a huge empire that's like constantly at war and subjugating other people. You can tell that that's when there's like good things happening. Um, it's also a really weird way of looking at the world because it acts like Europe is the only part of the world, which it's emphatically not. I mean, to be clear, I am a <laughs> Europeanist. Um, <laughs> And also it's interesting because there, it just like, we tend to take all of anything that we think is bad we then call medieval. So for example, mm -hmm. people will say, oh, um, they'll talk about like torture being a really medieval thing. I'll, I'll see now, you know, when people complain about um, extrajudicial torture that governments do, they'll be like, oh, it's so medieval. And I'm like, mm, torture is really much more of a modern thing. Uh, I mean, medieval people definitely did torture people, but uh, it's early modern people who really ramped it up. Um, stuff like winch hunts, like witch hunts are um, a pre, they are an early modern phenomena. Uh, they are not a medieval phenomena. So, but it's the, these sort of things where people just make these assumptions where it's like, if there's a thing that they think is mm -hmm. bad, then that's medieval. And it's also kind of like a really easy and lazy way of letting ourselves off the hook for all the bad stuff we do, mm -hmm. where we're like, oh yeah, um, basically if something that's bad, that belongs to this 1000 year period of history. And oh, either side of that, everything is fine. Um, with right, we're so much better now. Oh yeah, everything's great <laughs> So now. much better, right? Especially right now where I am. Peachy. Oh, wonderful <laughs> times. Absolutely brilliant times. You know, um, so for gender in particular, when we talk about the medieval period, um, it's quite interesting as well, because um, I'm writing a book about this as well, which should come out, I don't know, it's due in July. So inshallah, I don't know, like 2020, <laughs> 2022 or something like that. Let's see. Um, but I'm writing um, a book specifically about uh, women, um, and sexuality and gender in the medieval period. Um, and one of the things that I find really interesting about this, and one of the the things that I like thinking about is that, um, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not here to tell you, oh yeah, like women had a great time in the medieval period. Like that's not what this is. Um, but on the other hand, it, the reasons why, you know, women are oppressed are kind of like different from how they are now, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is really important to look into. Um, because for medieval people, when you kind of drill down to it, they like to take all of the sort of classical reasoning behind anything and then sort of layer on top of it. Um, so it's really ironic when you hear people be like, oh yeah, Rome and the Greeks and all that, that was great, but then it all fell down with medieval people. And medieval people are actually like completely reverential about uh, the ancient period. And so like a lot of the uh, phenomenon or, or thinking about gender that they have is actually Aristotelian. Um, and it'll be mm -hmm. about like Aristotle's work or Plato's work and taking all of those and then kind of like slapping some Christianity on top of that and yeah. then rounding it all off. And so when you start prying into it, it's interesting because a lot of their thinking about gender um, is the sort of like Aristotelian way of thinking about things where it's like, well, there is a default human. And that default human is a man, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we, yes. we so that's how we define things, right? It's like, okay, so there's a human. So women are kind of like, the other one, you, you know, in comparison to that, and um, for all of this thinking, you know, both in classical and uh, medieval thought, this is also tied to humoral theory. Mm -hmm. uh, people, again, with humoral theory, that's one of those things that people like to say, oh, well, like, that, that's very medieval. That's something that medieval people did. Dude, classical people came up with it. Galen was an ancient Greek. This is like, it's like every single Roman physician that you, you come <laughs> into contact with was doing humoral theory too. Um, 
I've heard that's it's that's a, a pet peeve of mine is people act like Romans had workable medicine all the time, which it just blows my mind every time I hear it. They're like, oh, I mean, we lost. Right. Medicine. Not that I object to it, uh, you know, literally coming from Rome. However, <laughs> I think people have a lot of misconceptions about what the Roman Empire was. Seriously. It's like, yes, yeah. this golden age. And I was like, I think people, like you said, just love like a large empire. Yeah. And, and a lot of what we knew came from like um, Arabic culture, you mm -hmm. know, from yeah. Greek culture, it came like, yes. Yeah, I mean, like I, it, it was always yes. a constantly a, a means of bringing things in, right? So humoral theory. Exactly. It, and humoral theory too um, is one of these things where, you know, it's, it was generally in the Mediterranean world. Um, this is just accepted practice, right? So there's kind of like the idea that the body, uh, the body is just kind of like microcosm of the universe itself. Yes. And it's split up into four humors and the humors, they correspond to um, different uh, conditions, right? So there's hot, dry, mm -hmm. wet, and cold. Um, mm -hmm. And then that corresponds to four humors within, within the body, which are blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. And those things are, um, are divided up um, across every person. And then that also corresponds to four temperaments, which mm -hmm. is a sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and oh gosh, what's the third one? That's bad. Something. The other one. I don't and remember it either. It's been a long time since I studied <laughs> history. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, basically, um, and the idea is that men are dry and hot, right? Um, mm -hmm. And like, oh, and those are kind of considered more to be um, like the positive attributes and women are wet mm -hmm. and cold. Yeah. And so, uh, and that is supposed to like rule everything about everyone, right? Um, and, it, and that just explains everything away, right? Um, and so essentially men, the, the, everything that gets divided between like being male and female, because there's just hard borders, hard borders of men and women, and this is how things are. Um, and specifically anything that is kind of like seen as more good is masculine mm -hmm. and everything that is more bad is feminine. And, you know, this is ordinary stuff. Like, you know, anyone now who studies gender to be like, yeah, okay, definitely for sure. <laughs> Do things change very much, but yeah. <laughs> um, but what I find really interesting about it is the ways in which for medieval people in particular, and actually uh, classical people as well, the ways in which women are then deemed to be not as good as men are really different from what they are for men and women now. Um, so for example, um, one of the big things that I never get tired about harping on about is that one of the proofs that women are, are sort of like the bad sex here um, is that they are perceived as being like massively and insatiably horny. Mm -hmm. And uh, so like women are just absolutely sex addled creatures who can't get out of bed in the morning because all they're thinking about is sex all the time. And men are very rational and they're like, no, I do not enjoy sex. I am, a, I'm a rational being. And um, that is something that doesn't interest me at all. And that's something that we've completely inverted now, right? So now mm -hmm. we are like, oh, women are not interested in sex even slightly. Uh, they, you essentially have to trick them into sex by having relationships with them. Um, whereas men are completely sex addled and they've only got one thing on their mind and they're, they're running around with this. Um, so the humoral way of talking about women being horny ones has to do with the fact that they are cold and wet. Um, so it's like in the first place, they're kind of like seeking heat so mm -hmm. there's this idea that pre-puberty, all humans are pretty warm. They're pretty warm and dry. Um, and then when puberty kicks in, women start getting cold and wet. 
Um, yeah, and you know, women like uh, girls will still be colder and wetter than boys, but they're still pretty hot, and that's why you know they're not sexual yet. They're not this. They're not that. Mm-hmm. Um, so puberty kicks in. Women start getting cold and wet, and they become really desirous of having sex, specifically with men, and specifically kind of looking at entry sex here because they're attempting to warm themselves up. Um, <laughs> So there's a couple of ways of uh, looking at this, which is the first, um, women are sometimes called uh, something similar to wet wood. So it's like, oh, it takes them a really long time to get going. But once they heat up, it's like really hot. So uh, they get so horny. It's like a forest fire where it's it's just almost impossible to stop once it burns because it's so out hot. of control. Yeah. You just can't do anything about it. And what they're looking for is that friction, which warms mm. them up. But they also derive more pleasure from sex because it was thought, there's two competing schools of thought about this. There is um, the uh, one semen theory and the two semen theory. Two semen theory, slightly more prevalent. And the idea there is that both men and women have semen Mm-hmm. And uh, they will, I mean, this is extremely cis stuff. Like, let's be very clear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, yes, like, warning. This like, is a lot about cisgenderism. Whoa, this is, it's just cis, like, all over the place. Um, and then, so basically, both men and women, when they have sex, when they orgasm, uh, they are, they ejaculate, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so women are, are, it's thought, get more pleasure from sex than men because the idea is that they get pleasure from their own ejaculation and they also feel pleasure Mm. uh, from men's ejaculate. And so, uh, you know, medical writers like Avicenna um, or Ibucina, who was a a big, uh, who was a kind of Arabic world um, uh, physician, very, very important. He was like, oh yeah, the women derive pleasure from the very motion of men's sperm within them. So it's like, again, Mm -hmm. that motion, that friction like warms them up and they're and mm-hmm. they're really desirous of that um single sperm theory is kind of like the same thing only women don't ejaculate and but they still just love sperm they just love it they just absolutely love sperm and that's what's, what they're about <laughs> what's fascinating to me is how much uh around those theories have so much about pleasure mm. which is so different than the way we tend to think about sex kind of in a more modern era right mm-hmm. And there's really almost a move away from pleasure, especially where women are concerned. And so much of this is actually about desire and lust and pleasure. And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily what people might think about when they think about gender relationship or cisgender relationship, we should say, and sexuality in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's a very astute because I've, sometimes what I say is that like actually medieval theologians have really won this particularized war where they were trying to make sex not about pleasure and not about mm. um, you know, desire or anything like that. And they were trying to turn it into a specific procreative act that only exists for this reason. Um, and there is a, a huge history of that. So for example, uh, St. Augustine, um, of Hippo, who yes. is a big church theologian, he writes all the time about how uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, in theory, if um, if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, um, then they would have been able to procreate just by using like their brains. They would just be like, okay, uh, penis get erect, uh, vagina get uh, get wet, insert, think, okay, um, you know, we we have ejaculated, we're done, baby. Uh, oh, and- bless Santiago Sin has some really weird ideas. <laughs> He's, I was brought up Catholic and I was like, he had some weird, not really in line with the church ideas. Yes. Yeah, and my man uh, is also just like the, this massive hypocrite because for years and years and years of his life, he had like, you know, he had concubines and all these extra. Exactly. Things. 
then he joins the church and he's like in the first place vaguely horny about pears which okay but um it's that's fine uh so for him he, there's this idea that procreation would have if we hadn't all fallen mm. you wouldn't experience any pleasure from it you would just do it it would just be something rational um and he writes a lot about sexuality and the sort of shame associated with about um a lack of control of genitalia and so for him like part of like the shame eve brought has brought on people is that they are no longer in control of all this desire they feel all this horniness that they feel whereas they would have never felt that ideally without the fall and they wouldn't be feeling it still um and everyone kind of agrees in the medieval period that like sex is really really fun right and they spend all this time being like knock off doing all the fun sex that you enjoy because people are actually more interested in it seems from the way that people write about it the sort of sex that now we are like oh that's not quote-unquote real sex right because real yeah. sex is just penises and vaginas that's the only one that really counts medieval people were like yeah we like everything else <laughs> you know it's like you can do a lot more than penis and vagina sex. I know, and this is what's great, right, about the Middle Ages. It's like we make all these assumptions that this is how we've always thought about sexuality. This is how it's always mm -hmm. been. Like you said, there was an active campaign by theologians to really take the fun out of sex, mm -hmm. take the pleasure out, and also to blame women for this kind of masculine sexuality, right, which still is... To this day, you know, I remember as a teenager with the good Catholic boys, it's like your fault if they feel desire, right? And you're yeah. in them into temptation, like St. Augustine did win that one, but yeah. <laughs> it really was something else. It's not, this is not how it's always been. This is not yeah. done sex or thought about sex. Yeah, and it's like, so for them, you know, this also really kind of ties up with, you know, the conception of sodomy generally mm -hmm. as well because it's like sodomy uh, that they they wage this huge war against right it's like yes. you absolutely shouldn't be doing sodomy you have to just be doing this procreative sex um you know sodomy being anything that can't lead to pregnancy yeah right? um and so like no no hand jobs no oral no nothing like no for, they're really into frottage there's a lot of frotting Mm -hmm. <laughs> that goes on in the medieval period and the church is constantly being like please stop doing this and just have penis and vagina sex oh my god i'm begging you like this is so this is so not what we want you to do and they've won that war you know now in the 21st century we very much that's how we define sex we're like oh well mm -hmm. i don't know if no one's if no one's vagina was penetrated or no one's penis was enveloped did you have sex no it's not real sex Whereas, you know, obviously there's this whole range of sexual expression that, you know, the big and the big worry here for medieval people around that me medieval theologians is they're like, that's the one that everyone likes, though. So like the <laughs> one that people are doing because it's really pleasurable, like all the sex that is like really, really pleasurable is all the stuff that you're not supposed to be doing because the only reason you're supposed to be having sex is to procreate. And we've just internalized that now. And we're like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, sex exists for procreation. Absolutely, that's why it exists. And for medieval people, it was kind of like sex exists almost um, as a punishment, a very sexy punishment that you really, <laughs> you really enjoy, right? So it's like the reason that sex exists is that it's like a trap because it's so fun that mm -hmm. like you're maybe going to be led into sin with this. And so women, of course, are more likely to be led into sin by this because, you know, women be sinning um in, in general you know i mean like, from the beginning of time according to the bible so there yeah, you go <laughs> that's it it's like the thing that one of the things that denotes uh women as opposed to men from the christian out, out uh standpoint is that they are just more prone to sin and they are more prone to suggestion you know they, they'd be talking to snakes you never mm -hmm. know with them so 
Yeah. So basically always doing the fan stuff, right? Exactly. Church doesn't like it. Well, what's fascinating to me about this is, like I said, first of all, how much pleasure there is when it comes to sex and sexuality in the Middle Ages, but also that I know that there were all this theory, they're very cisgenderist theory, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's also cisnormative and heteronormative. But, you know, it's not like gender and sexuality were only cisgender and only heterosexual in the Middle Ages, right? Because that's a big misconception. In the same way that people are like, oh, kinky people were invented yesterday when you're... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Middle Ages were super kinky. In the same way, they're like, oh, trans people, they came from Tumblr, you know, or (laughs) queer people. It is this, you know wild modern age we live in, but it's not true, is it? <laughs> no, it's not true at all. And it's one of those things where we see all of those things like, you know, adamantly present, you know, if if you're looking for it, and this yeah. is the, you know, for a long time, just people wouldn't look for it because, well, mm-hmm. I, A, sometimes it was actually staring people in the space and they were like, I do not see it. I'm just not going to <laughs> interact with this because it, um, the way that history gets used a lot of the time is, you know, the other way that we use history is, oh, there was a pure past when people were not sinful like now and they were mm-hmm. and oh they were all holy eyes on god which is a big way that medievalism got used around sort of like the the uh, late 19th early 20th century um mm-hmm. it was sort of like used as um a way of contrast against the industrial industrialized society and like oh everyone was more godly everyone yes. was more eyes on this whereas you go back to the medieval period and they're talking about you know kink they're talking about queer things there are trans people walking around but yeah there's also a, de- a different way of looking at it. So, because for example, now we really think about all of these things as like identity, right? So it's like, you know, someone is a heterosexual or bisexual or, or you know, or yeah. just gay, you know, like, so, and it's, that's a thing that one is. And for medieval people, that wasn't really true. It was just something that you did. So mm-hmm. it's like sex isn't something that defines you as a person other than do you have sodomy or not? And like, that's it. So, um, and technically, you know, a married cis woman and man, if like she go gives her husband a blowjob, she's as much of a sodomite and he's as much of a sodomite as two gay dudes, right? Yes. What we would call gay dudes. Um, yeah. But the difference is there is a way for women and men to be having sex that isn't sodomy, whereas there wouldn't for uh, two cis people of the same sex. Mm. And... Within that, it's interesting because sometimes you see theologians actually go in more heavily at uh, married people who are doing mm. uh, so because they're like, you have a kind of sex that we said that you could do. Like, do you have an approved sex? So like, what is your problem? Just do it. Whereas mm. um, a lot of people that we see condemned for sodomy, a lot of the time it's like monks and nuns. And it's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You know, they're just, they're really just hanging out with each other all the time. So yeah, you know, a certain amount of sodomy is bound to happen. And and, and kind of almost acceptable in some mm-hmm. way. It yeah. becomes part of the lore in some way. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it's like one of these things that we kind of, even now really sort of expect that people kind of expect you mm-hmm. to be like, oh yeah, well, a lot of non- uh, monks were gay that sort of a thing and I mean partially that's because we've got really good records of what they were thinking and doing because 
these are people who sit around writing all the time, right? So they do, you know, we have their love letters, we have uh, mm -hmm. their reflection on things. Um, there will also be occasional moral panics within monasteries and nunneries where like someone will say they had a vision of hell and that we've got to like root sodomy out of the monastery. And we've got to stop back. having those orgies and yeah, then it's pretty much fine. <laughs> and it's like, so it'll be like, oh, I've, I've, been to, I've been to hell and back and we've all like knock off the orgy right now. And so there we have a lot of really good records about that. Um, and we definitely also see especially references uh, to particularly, um, you know, gay men, as we would say, um, especially in kind of like from the 14th century and later on. Um, hell frescoes become a really big thing. Uh, people just love on, on mm. the side of a church, they want to paint hell. And yeah. um, they like to depict all the kind of different tortures that you get in hell for the seven deadly sins. Sodomy kind of falls under lust. It's like one of the issues with lux, with mm -hmm. lust. And um, one of the things that they like to show is it's sort of like whatever your sin was in life, you get sort of like the inversion of that. So there mm -hmm. becomes like this a, a real obsession with kind of like, um, for example, showing men who are lustful being spit roasted like mm -hmm. naked and yeah. if you're like you're supposed to understand like this penetrative thing so we do know a little bit more about that and we do know more about like these panics about gay men in particular because people like um saint thomas aquinas was a real dick about it um yeah. even because he likes to make um hierarchies of everything um and for him it, he would always talk about sex as being logical or illogical and it was like oh it's completely illogical i mean it, the worst thing that you could do in his opinion was bestiality and like mm -hmm. i'm sort of like the heart agree like so you know we, we kind of agree on some things me and thomas Aquinas. but uh it's for him though almost like wanking is pretty much on par uh okay. with with homosexual sex uh because mm -hmm. it's like well yeah that bolt neither of them make any sense it's like uh that that's something that you wouldn't do generally so we definitely know that like homosexual people are present it's just that they don't call themselves gay because they don't think of themselves as that. That's not the way mm -hmm. they're, they're doing something. And that's something that they probably enjoy. Um, I'm sure that they feel terrible about it because society is spending a lot of time doing it. Although like amongst nuns, hilariously, when nuns are going for it, they don't seem to have a whole lot of remorse about it at all. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that kind of with nunneries in the Middle Ages. Well, and also a lot of nuns were kind of almost forced into a convent. It's not mm -hmm. like was like this free choice for a lot of people, right? Yeah, it's like if with um, both, I mean, like both, really. It's like most mm. monks and nuns, like they basically get sent <clears throat> there by their family. Yeah. It's like, we've got this extra kid and it'll be, they're from richer families because you got to kind of yes. put money in. But then you also have like, you know, whole orders of nuns, for example, like the Magdalens who are all um, what you call quote unquote reformed or, mm. or repentant sex workers um yeah. and they'll be like oh bless me father for i've sinned i've been a, a big old sex worker and to be uh, technically the the standard uh, penance to be for being a sex worker is just to go get married and have kids Mm -hmm. But um, if you were really feeling bad about it, you might want to join a convent instead and then and really pray about it. And, you know, so that that's open. But a lot of times, yeah, it, you basically get marched up to a monastery or nunnery when you're like eight to 11. And it's like, there you go. There's your life now. And families kind of see this as like a down payment on like prayers for their family. It's sort yeah. of like a get out of hell faster card because you always have someone who's praying for you. And because also interestingly you know like all of the you know on and on and on about the way that we tend to 
centralized kind of like um, penetration. A lot of time nuns were like, well, I'm not doing penetration. So so it must be okay, right? That's <laughs> the coin of all, what the theologians were, were trying to do. If they are legitimate sex, as penis and vagina, then all this other stuff must can be that bad, right? It must be yeah. okay. If <laughs> And it's like, although we also know that like uh, people like like women were having sex with other women using dildos and stuff. Like we know that yep. uh, we've got receipts. We've got actually literal receipts about like, you know, um, <laughs> that someone in the lowlands made um, a red leather dildo and harness for a woman we know. And that's, that's kind of hot. You know, I don't, well, I don't actually know who she was using it on to be fair. Um, there's the Bishop Bouchard of Worms who wrote um, a penitential which is essentially a guidebook about like uh, if you're taking confessions from people mm -hmm. uh, it gives you questions to ask if they're not like being particularly forthcoming and it also lets you know what penances you should give if people do certain mm -hmm. sins and he's got this whole thing where he's at, like oh you should ask women if uh, they're making dildos um, if they're then making like strap-ons to use their dildos with and then if they're using just the dildo on themselves or if they're using it on other women and it's like it goes basically the penances for that go up and it's like for Bouchard of Worms his thing is like well um, if you're just kind of fooling around with another woman you know if it's just like hand stuff that's I mean it's not good but it's not that bad but then by the time you're making dildos that's much more like oh I don't know about this because there's this whole thing about it being like uh, inverted and unnatural you know um, and, and for medieval people unnatural it, it also means more specifically in line with God yeah so there's like and what's yeah, what's fascinating to me is that it must have been pretty common if you made it into like a book, right? It's like, it's, it's like I say now, well, if it's made into like a Netflix series or something, it means that enough people yeah, have exactly. experience. Yeah. And it's a bit like that. It's a, if you made it into this penitential, it must have been fa a fairly common occurrence mm -hmm. in ages for women to be doing this. Well, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing specifically with medieval history, right? We don't have, you know, like the term dark ages, you know, uh, basically hints. We don't have a whole ton of sources that um, always survive. So when we have multiple sources that are all telling us the same thing it, that do survive, we're like, oh yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> I guess that's, I mean, penitentials are also a difficult one because basically they're written by this group of people who are essentially sexually deviant mm -hmm. you know, in that they're celibate um and so sometimes it's like a little bit sometimes it reads a little bit like some dude being like yeah yeah and you, are you making strap-ons yeah 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 and you know like tell me tell me about that and, and like you do have to worry about that but having said that even controlling for that it looks very much like this is something that um is a fairly regular occurrence um we also know uh for example that like there's a lot of trans people about. Um, mm. Interestingly, we have a lot more trans men that tend mm. to show up on the record. That's and fascinating. I, Tell me about that. I didn't know that. <laughs> a lot of the time, it's like monks and stuff. So a, a thing that, oh. that happens really mm. commonly is that, you know, brother, you know, Bertrand or somebody will die um, and they go to bury him and they're like, oh. Surprise. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and interestingly, that doesn't change the way they feel about it. They will still mm. like refer to him as brother and things. They're just like, oh, well now I guess we know. And I mean, I think that there's also, you know, with that, there's a certain amount of um, also judgment of women, right? Because it's like, well, of mm. course you'd want to be a man. Like, obviously everyone would be a man, like if they had the choice, like that, that's a perfectly mm. logical way of relating to it. Um, it also kind of shows up in a lot of like saints miracles and things where women who are going to be, you know, classic 
uh, you know, a woman who is Christian is going to be forced to marry a pagan dude. She doesn't want to praise to God. Um, He gives her a beard. Um, Mm -hmm. And then her husband says, oh, never mind. I don't want to marry a woman with a beard. And she says, hooray, and joins a monastery instead. Mm -hmm. And, but it is really specifically played out. It's like, oh, well, and now she is a he. And now that he's got this beard, it's like, yeah, off to the monastery with you. Live your life, like your best life. So we have tons of that. But we also do have like trans women show up in certain places. Um, For example, here in London, we know in the 14th century, there was a sex worker who was also named Eleanor, um, who got uh, apprehended having sex outside of the Tower of London. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it turns out she was trans. And um, she kind of gets apprehended at first because you're just, you're not supposed to be having sex outside of the Tower of London. If you're doing commercial sex, you're supposed to be having it across the bridge in Southwark. You need to be mm-hmm. um, outside of London proper. So that's what she got apprehended for at first. And then they were like, oh, you're trans. And then, and they're really quite interested in it. It really comes aqu- across like the the way that they write about it. It's, it's very like, mm, quite obsessed and, and sort of like it, it, it's treated it kind of like in a chasery way almost where it's like it's yeah. death so nothing much has changed exactly <laughs> exactly we're like oh yeah and then what did you do uh-huh uh-huh and she says well this is something that i picked up i you know i was really desperate and poor and um i started hanging out with a bunch of other sex workers and they were like look you'll make more money if you know and and then i was like hey i could be a girl too and then then that's just it and um we don't really know what happened to her. We think she might have like either been let off or escaped. Like she was sort of brought into court. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like, tell him, tell him about, tell him about how you're trans. And like, she has to like go into court and be like, yeah, I'm a big trans person, you know, or whatever. And then mm-hmm. we don't know what happened after that. And so there's mm-hmm. a kind of a big question mark over her. Uh, but we know that, you know, basically if people are getting caught and it's showing up on in records like this, again, we know that it's something that's happening. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's no surprise to anyone that especially in a, a sort of community that is this kind of punitive and this specific about what gender is and what it means that, you know, we'll see more sex workers in segments of society that are already kind of on the outside like sex workers mm-hmm. are so it's like yeah that's a great place to go find some some uh, trans women you know then as now again because it's like well how do you get through the society that is really saying you know this is what mm-hmm. you have to be and how do you deal with the poverty that ensues from that um you know and it's it, one of the only trades that was really open to women in the medieval period is sex work um mm-hmm. which is like how you and make that would and that was for all women like that mm-hmm. was you know cis and trans alike and and it's so interesting that there is right this paradox of like you are not um you're not allowed to exist in any other way but also your existence is completely titillating in some way and it's when it's aligned with femininity when it's aligned with masculinity of oh this is logical and we're just gonna it's it's holy it's holy (laughs) when it's men right it's like oh wow this is great we love this Mm -hmm. and then when it's aligned with women it's just this is sexual immediately yeah and Mm -hmm. so it's that's really depressing i mean um in terms of kink it's quite interesting because like there's a lot (laughs) there's a lot of stuff around the shop um but which um, always interests me then there it seems to be a you know particular interest uh for example in just you know masochism um in particular Mm -hmm. sadism um and we see it in that come about in a lot of different ways you know you'll see it in instances like uh for example um there is a 12th century philosopher uh peter abelard 
and he's got this kind of celebrated relationship with his it's which is kind of creepy in real in the his 2t eloise who he goes on to knock up and marry and all this stuff um but he was a very very famous philosopher uh, if you've seen being john malkovich and you see the puppet yes. show that he's doing at the beginning that's abelard and eloise where the mm. guy punches him on the street um so they have a bunch of hot and horny sex and this sort of a thing, but they're not supposed to be having it, A, because they're not married at the time, B, because Abelard is her tutor. So there's this whole thing about mm. how occasionally Abelard will um, hit her publicly in front of um, other people to kind of, A, keep people off the scent of the fact that they're having sex. But also there's a specific thing where he writes about how the blows that he gives her are more tender than any kiss could be. And they both write about it in this really kind of like sexualized way. And so there's this kind of performance that mm. for them both establishes their religion, their religion, their relationship in their minds. Um, but it's also, they're clearly like deriving real pleasure from this. Um, mm. We also know a lot um, in terms of like looking at stuff like art, um, mm -hmm. because um, the art gets kind of horny uh, <laughs> very quickly, especially around kind of like S&M things. So um, which people don't realize because a lot of it is religious. But I mean, you just got to go look for it and, and it's there. So um, you have examples, for example, St. Agatha um, mm -hmm. who, uh, of Catania. And she, yeah, and, yeah we love her. Uh, and she's, again, classically... <laughs> Christian girl who was supposed to marry a Roman didn't want to. So um, they decide that they're going to torture her uh, before she's executed. And one of the ways she's tortured, she has her breasts cut off. But then luckily, yeah. I think it's St. Peter then shows up in jail and is like, oh, here, here girl, your titties are back. And like, gives them back to her. And that's me. That, that's her, like in Sicily, you're going to church and there's like, there's St. Agata with their breasts on a plate. And mm -hmm. I'm yeah, like, my British a, partner visited was like, what is happening there? Are those, I was like, yeah, those are boobs. Those and boobs. they make sweets that are <laughs> like breasts in Sicily in honor of St. Agata, you know, it's like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's her. It's her and Saint Lucy, who is also yep. Sicilian, and it's her yep. eyes. It's Saint Agatha's boobs and, uh, yep. and uh, Saint Lucy's eyes. Um, yeah. But so Saint Agatha, Agatha has all this um, art of her, and she's like very provocatively kind of like stripped to the waist, and her hands are tied above her head, and there'll be these yep. like, Roman guards that have like it'll be like the instruments are right up against the boobs, but like not mm. doing anything yet. And so, and it, it, it it's fairly kinky you know or you have uh you know queer favorite saint sebastian a legend yeah, absolutely um, you know and he and he gets uh, tortured by uh being tied up to a tree and shot with arrows and he is often like erotically tied up and stripped naked and you know you could say oh well you're just reading queer things into it but we know mm. for a fact there are during the protestant reformation like right at the 15th century you have all these sorry 16th century you have all these people who are like yeah well I, it's good that i'm a protestant now because when i was a catholic i used to go to the church and i would just get so horny looking at all yeah. the pictures of saints and it was just like so hot and like my dick would be so hard and i'd be distracted from thoughts of god by all the horny art of saints there was and so yeah. they're telling you that the way that they related to this is like as sexy so like it's not us like we don't have to you know or they'll have ecstatic visions where it'll be like oh i was praying in church and jesus came down off the cross and he was covered in blood and i licked it yeah. all off and then we made out and then i put my hand in his side wound and it, and like they're telling you like about these extended makeout sections or sessions mm -hmm. that they're, they're imagining or like um ecstatic orgies where 
Yeah. And he has sex with all of the nuns in a convent and they all have sex with each other. And there is like a bunch of stuff about him being bloodied. And it's like, that's what's hot, you know? So we know that kink is about the shop uh, because mm-hmm. they're, they're just straight up telling us, you know, there's, you know, if almost all art that survives is religious because that's just what there was room to do, like that's what there was room for professionally, then yeah, people are going to get the horny stuff in where they can and they they do, you know? So it's it's just one of those things where we tend to go, oh, well, if it's religion, you can't hide these things in there. And medieval people are like, look, everything's religion. <laughs> that's so- like, well, hold my beer, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've been doing this for a while. Um, but and I think that's the thing with the the mid the medieval times. Um, people have this idea, like we said at the beginning, right? Have these ideas, and we have dismantled them. You have dismantled them already in like a few minutes. Tell me about like how do you translate all of this for something like a graphic guide, where I'm assuming <laughs> there'll be either some content warning or like we're like you know I'll put my like rating on the podcast and. I'm like, <laughs> Children, don't listen to this one uh, unless you have parental guidance. Um, but, yeah, know, I mean, it's you managed it's, to put all of this in a book. <laughs> it's a really tricky one because it's like, so I suppose for my guide, it's like in the first place, all I had to do was, you know, put uh, a thousand years of history in a book. That's it. Normal. Easy peasy, Fine. right? So, um, you know, I ha- I, I've done the kind of like a traditional thing of like having. Uh, a big way that we talk about a pre-modern society uh, in generally in general is we will use the term persecuting society which i'm Mm -hmm. always like really like we need to be very careful with that because certainly you know the medieval early modern and ancient period were all part of a persecuting society but we're still in one so you know you know like let's not go around patting ourselves on the back but um you know, there's a real opportunity within that to kind of like talk about groups that are often overlooked. So I've got specific spaces where I talk about, um, you know, lepers, sex workers, Jewish people, um, Muslims, uh, women, you know, and all these things where it's like, okay, well, like, let's drill down more specifically. Mm. Um, I tried really hard to get women in generally uh, into the conversation. But, you know, there are times when you're, you just have to be like, here, we're going to talk about humoral theory. This is the way that you think about women. And I mean, the trouble is too, like medieval people are really horny. So it's hard to, to kind of like get the horny stuff out. It's like, if you want to talk about courtly love, Mm-hmm. you specifically have to sit down and be like well this is about a bunch of married people being horny for each other and like and writing each other letters about how badly they want to bang and there's like you can't get around that so i just have to choose words very carefully and say stuff like bang and it's but it's also really difficult because you know it's one of those things where with a graphic guide you know people say oh look a picture and oh it's the medieval period so this must be for children and i'm like this is not I assure no. you. And also a kid would be just bored out of their tree because, you know, half the time I'm just being like, oh, the Altonian Renaissance, isn't it interesting when the German <laughs> land, you know, it's like, you know, I think that's interesting. And I think readers will, but I don't know what the average 11 year old, I don't think that they are that interested in the walk to Canosa. You know, that's all I'm saying, you know, it, <laughs> it's, that's, that's for telling the, the story of the history. So it's an interesting one because I think the way that we tend to relate to history a lot of the time is as this particularly dry thing. And it's just a bunch of like mm-hmm. kings and wars. It's a list of what you, what history is, is a list of kings and wars. <laughs> and the more wars, the better the king was. And, and that's basically it. But we're finally starting to kind of broaden out and recognize that history is basically just looking at 
you know, looking at stuff that's old one way or another. So, you know, what I say mm-hmm. that I, I do is, I'm, you know, I'm a social historian. So what I'm interested in is talking about society generally. Um, and it's just kind of like the equivalent of being, you know, a sociologist now or an anthropologist now, but it's just, I do it with uh, people who've been dead for a couple hundred years. That's it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm trying more specifically to recreate what a society was like. I don't, you know, I'm, of course I'm interested in, you know, important dead people because they have an effect on things, but that's, that's not what I'm about. Like, I'm trying to figure out what conditions would have been like for the average person by taking that stuff and kind of fleshing mm-hmm. it around. Um, so hopefully the graphic guide, uh, reflects that. Um, and so but it, you know it, it does everything that you kind of need it, it my, the thing that i did is i based it on uh first year courses that i've taught on the medieval period so nice. it, it's like all the same things that i want a group mm-hmm. of 19 year olds to learn in a year it's it's doing all those same things basically mm-hmm. yes and and not too r-rated <laughs> <laughs> exactly not too r-rated just r-rated enough to get people to pay attention you know you yeah. gotta hide <laughs> Well, it also sounds like it's really hard to talk about the Middle Ages without being outrated because there was so much, like you said, there was so much sex going on. And and what's fascinating is that even, like, you know, the way we think about gender, you already talked about the way we think about sexuality is not the way we think about it now. It's about mm-hmm. behavior rather than identity, right? But even gender, when you think about the humoral theory, right? the division between the genders doesn't come from genitals, which is fascinating, right? That's one of the things I always say. It's like science is not neutral. You decide the things that you choose to pay attention to, right? So this, there's almost an undifferentiated nature of the genders until puberty, right? Where mm-hmm. you differentiate just because of sex, but because of those humors, yeah. which of course, yeah. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's actually about like your humor, your humor is being the thing that determines everything else. So they, because it, it's sort of thought that like, you know, when men are hot, so um, the penis kind of grows out sort of away from that, whereas yeah. women are not sufficiently warm to grow a dick. It's <laughs> the idea. And it's like, well, I, ideally your dick would have like come out if you were warm enough, but you just weren't warm enough. So there is actually um, much more of a way of thinking about, um, you know, genitals and that sort of a thing as being, well, yeah, it's a toss up. Everyone's got everything and it's just down mm. to the heat. It's down to the your, the requisite amount of heat. That's what makes that determination. But it's all the same thing that then your heat, your heat does it. And yeah. Which is very different than the way we think about it now, I mm. think. So mm-hmm. that's, that's fascinating too. It's very different, but also kind of similar in terms of what we know now about maybe not genders not being as inherently differently different as Mm -hmm. we think they are yeah exactly exactly and you know they there is that even though they love to do a gender division they do have this kind of like innate thing of like yeah there isn't you know in the first place souls are kind of like gender neutral and then it it does and yeah women are are worse obviously it's like it's always kind of shameful that you ended up being a woman like how dare you but within that there is also this acknowledgement that it really could have gone either way Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, sexual practice uh, on the part of parents might determine that, you know, just a luck and timing might determine that there's all sorts of different mm-hmm. things, but it is one of those things where, you know, yeah. And, and obviously I'm sure you've probably talked about this before, but even up until, you know, the 19th century, 20th century, there wasn't a real gendering of children so much. It was exactly. just kind of like, you know, you slap a smock on them and it's like, get out there, <laughs> you know, and then that's it. And it, it's not like until Victorians when it's like, oh no, we have to start putting everyone in the requisite clothing and they all behave in this way. 
Um, mm. You know, so for medieval people, it really is about just kind of like when your humors start kicking in. That's the thing. That's the mm -hmm. actual thing. Uh, I could keep talking about this for a long time, but I want to be respectful of your time. And one of the questions I always ask is, is there anything we haven't talked about that you feel it's really important to name or mention or talk about? Hmm, that's a good question. I suppose that the main thing uh, I'll just kind of like underline what like my point, the, the sort of like my point is the way that sexuality and gender works is, is really complex. There are certain things obviously there are certain in terms of historical uh the historical relationship to it and we tend to say okay well things were always like they are now but they were just more rigid and we're just moving towards an increasingly um permissible place and that's simply not true when we look at it on the face of it and you see a lot of the same uh results as a result of this thinking but also we see the basically the mathematics that you use to get there are completely different. And I think that's really valuable to think about because if we just acknowledge that things are a social construct, I'm not saying that social constructs aren't real. What I'm saying is that they're, they can be dismantled because if it's a mm -hmm. construct that we're all agreeing upon and we're all saying, well, women are like this because of X, Y, and Z, but we get to exactly the same place, which is that women have to be lesser than men because of these five things. Well, if those five things is constantly changing, but the outcome is that a woman is always treated like she's not optimum, the optimum is a man, then that's something that we can take apart and we can dismantle. Um, if people want to act like a trans people were invented on Tumblr, as you say, <laughs> and it's, it's only it's only something now, uh, and it's not something that happened before, then they need to explain why it is that we see such evidence of it in the past. Um, and I think it's really telling when we look at the relationship that people had to, for example, trans people uh, in the medieval period, um, it's often kind of uh, seen still in in the trans panics that we have now where it's like mm -hmm. oh well um yeah it's you need to focus more on uh trans women because like they're doing oh it's some weird sex thing it's got to be a sex thing because you know mm. how that is whereas it's like a lot of the time either trans men everyone ignores them or it boils down to baby making and it's like yeah. oh well, how dare people not be making babies because that's the only thing that women are really good for is their mm -hmm. potential ability to maybe make a man right yeah. and so we can actually learn a little bit from the medieval people on trans issues because they're actually a little bit more like, I don't know, okay. You know, like <laughs> well, I guess that happened. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. And then they and they love it when it happens. When it turns out that like a monk isn't cis, they're like, this is we love that. That that guy, my good friend, you know, and they're like, hey, everybody, they want you to know he was trans and they still refer to him as a dude. So it's like mm. maybe maybe when certain people are writing ridiculous like moral panic guides about trans men right now they could chill mm. out and learn something from the medieval period <laughs> you know it was actually cooler about this stuff um, that's all i'm saying you know um, i mean you made the middle ages sound very very cool like i history was not my favorite subject in school i have to say but now i want to pick up a history book that's hey. how so I know you mentioned the blog at the beginning. So if people would like to find your blog or find you on social media, where can people find all things Dr. Yanega? Because you're awesome. Oh, I love you. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the blog is, all my stuff is branded. I'm um, on Twitter. I'm at Going Medieval, capital G, capital M. Um, my blog is going-medieval.com because some fool got to goingmedieval.com before me. <laughs> And he is not even using it. And I know it's a what? man. I know it's a man. And I'm just like, give me, give me my rightful URL, please. But it's going hyphen medieval. 
Um, so I usually have uh, new stuff up there um, every week. Oh, and I suppose for um, in the gender uh, the gender stories podcast universe. Um, I also have, um, from, you know, our, like we're, we are like a writing metamors metamors thing. That's right. Uh, so <laughs> yes. I also have um, a new podcast. If people are interested in it, um, called sex jams with Justin Hancock, where, uh, we listen Yay. to, we listen to, uh, pop songs that are about sex. Um, and we kind of take them apart critically as a sex historian and a sex educator. Um, so that is up now in the uh, culture sex relationship uh, universe. So if you're interested in those things, do check it out. Um, and that's yeah, so exciting. I'm just constantly talking about sex and being like, this really reminds me of courtly love. <laughs> so, and I'll <laughs> and never then stop. Do you have a Patreon as well? <laughs> I do. I do have a Patreon as well. And I believe that. Maybe you should say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I'm so bad at asking people to pay me for my labor. It's ridiculous. Yeah, my Patreon is a Patreon slash Going Medieval. Um, and there, if you're interested in becoming a patron, um, at the minute, all of my patrons get um, a bespoke podcast every month where I read a medieval source and analyze it out. Um, and then they also get a newsletter and a video um, every month where I do various things. So it's very exciting. I've just chose today my podcast this month. I'm going to be doing a bunch of ghost stories because the medieval period uh, Christmas time is associated with the undead as you do. Uh, and uh, this month for the uh, the other content, my uh, friend uh, Sarah Oberg-Straddle, another medieval historian and I are doing a watch along of the Netflix Netflix terrible Christmas movie, A Night for Christmas, which is a terrible rom-com uh, about a 14th century night coming to, I think, Cleveland? I don't know. Anyway. It's I like love A Night for Christmas. It's great. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> It's so good. It's like it's one so of good. those Christmas movies that it's like, it is so bizarre. It's, yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. It's I will not spoil it. If, yeah, I, so if you haven't watched it. Yeah. Everyone go watch that. And if you want, and if you want to contribute to the Patreon, you can know what I think about that. But um, yeah, help, help. Help. I need money. I'm a sex historian. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on Gender Stories today. I really, really appreciated this conversation. It was so fun. And I'm sure the listeners think it was also so fun. So please go find the blog, the Twitter feed, and the Patreon, and also Sex Jams with Justin. Yes. So much exciting material out there. And, um, and stay curious because the history books don't tell it as it is, as you've mm -hmm. learned today. So... Um, thank you so much for listening and thank, thank you so much for being on today. <laughs> it's such a pleasure. Thanks so much. I've had such a blast. <laughs>